Moving internationally is quite an experience. I mean, uh, among other things, we're moving with two cats, so we had to get USDA forms for them, and uh, there are just a lot of different hurdles to clear in order to do it. And the reason I'm moving is that my, my wife is a marine biologist, and she's taking a job as a curator at a natural history museum in Hamburg. So I'm a trailing spouse. I'm along for the ride. This is my reverse Beatles career trajectory, where I start out by playing arenas in California and end up in obscure clubs in Hamburg. Aside from the... Uh USDA clearance, what, what is the process of moving to Germany like? Well, you just have to make sure that your, all your visa stuff is in order, which since my wife's going to be a federal employee, that makes it easier for me to just be tacked on. But there are a lot of different forms. And of course, COVID then adds another layer onto that. And then you have to make sure that not only do you clear the requirements in the country that you're leaving, but also the country you're transiting through uh, if you land anywhere else and, and then the country that you're entering. And it's just a lot of different things. We're putting stuff in storage that's going to come to us later. And then, of course, a lot of it, you know, we've been selling off on Facebook Marketplace or a yard sale or we just let it go. Is there a quarantine period? Uh, no, uh, not if you're fully vaccinated. It sounds like you've been purging to some degree. How has that process been? Well, I've only been here. We've only been here in Gainesville, Florida for a year. So we haven't had that much time to accumulate a, a huge amount of stuff. And also, pretty much all of my musical gear is in Texas. So I'm going to start over completely where that's concerned in Germany. I'm just going to go buy a guitar next week or something. That's kind of liberating, it sounds like. It's kind of nice, like starting from scratch. Well, yeah, I, li I like thinking of it that way. That's a good idea. I'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, it like, yeah, you know, I get it when you're when you're really sort of in the middle of something that, you know, it, it, you're, you're just kind of looking down all of the downside of it. Well, no, it's, it's also just for me. Um, I mean, I'm going to turn 46 shortly. And I've had a very itinerant life as a traveling musician and a writer. And uh, during I spent most of the pandemic living in an RV in Texas and then moved here. And so it's, it's, it's been a lot of moving over many years. So I'm, I'm kind of ready to be still in that sense. Yeah, I am clearly a couple of moves behind because I assumed you were still in Texas, which probably I, I, I'm guessing a lot of people do. Yeah, well, that's where I'm listed as being. And if I'm there a fair amount of the time still. I mean, working on, uh, we were just working on the new Loma record about a month ago out there. Uh, and the, the Florida move was relatively recent by which I mean a year ago. But I've just been able to carry on from here. I mean, my book came out in March of last year. And so I've been able to do events for that just from where I'm sitting right now and went out to Texas a few times to finish up the Shearwater record and, and work on new Loma stuff. Did you travel a lot for the book as well? I mean, I, were you, you were in sort of in and out of uh, South America, right? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, I traveled many months for... Re I traveled many months researching the book, but I signed the contract for it back in 2015. So it took almost seven years to get it together. And I went to spent long stretches in Guyana and in Tierra del Fuego and the Falklands and uh, Brazil and uh, Peru, or sorry, uh, Chile, not Peru. Was that your first time back in the Falklands since your first time in the Falklands? No, I've, I've gone to the Falklands, I think about six times now, all told, which is a lot for any human being. Uh, but it sort of seems like it happens every five years or, or maybe a little bit less. 
I'm hoping to get back down there within the next couple of years, but it's been so locked down for quite a while that it's it's hard to know when that's going to be possible again. Just because you enjoy being there, or is there a new project? Well, there's uh, at this point, I've been involved peripherally with research on striated caracaras in the Falklands for long enough that I'm almost grandfathered in a little bit. So um, just by exposure, I happen to know some things about where they are and, and what the trends are and you know, it's sort of become accidentally valuable in some ways, uh, although they may just be humoring me. Yeah, grandfather it in is, is an interesting way of putting it. You mean from the standpoint that you're not like technically a scientist or ornithologist? <laughs> I always feel like that scene in the Blues Brothers where the landlady asks them, you know, are you from the CIA or something? And then they're like, no, ma'am, we're musicians. Uh, yeah, I've never led a research project there. I'm not a PhD. Uh, I've had a few things published in scientific journals, but it's not, I'm not a professional scientist. But you're alluding to the fact that they, the study of these specific birds, that the people who do that professionally see some value in the work that you've brought. Yeah, there's very few is the thing. And it's part of what made this story easy to keep track of over so many years just because it just moved so slowly. And the number of people interested in it, even casually, is very few and, and scientifically is, is even fewer. So, you know, it's possible to, to talk to everybody who's ever worked with striated caracaras in the wild in an, in an afternoon. That has to be part of the appeal of the project of just finding something that not entirely undiscovered, but finding this interesting story that not a lot of people know about. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, once I started really looking into the story, and because it started from that point of like, when I met them back in 1997, I was like, what are these birds? They're just so funny. And they look at you in this way that makes them seem, they look at you in a way that's extraordinarily conscious. I've never felt so seen by another animal. And that was my first encounter with them, which was just cold. I didn't even know they existed. I went to go look at some penguin colonies there, and I saw these weird sort of crow-like birds of prey running towards me across the ground. I was like, what the hell is this? And then I just got lucky to end up on uh, assisting on part of the first ever survey of the breeding population of that species in the islands. So that was a baptism by fire. That was what really sparked my interest in birds in general, not just in that species. But then once I started looking at that question of like, what are these? Why are they only here? And why do they act like this? The whole book flowed from that because the answer takes almost you know 60 million years to really explain. You had mentioned this story. That's the story. The story is just what are what are these strange birds? Kind of, yes. Or that's like that's the entry point. That's the strange clue that gets left, you know, in your in your PO box, and then you have to, you start following it, and an entire thriller unfolds from there. Because what the book ended up being about was not just about a bird. It ended up being about why the world is the way it is, and why certain kinds of minds develop that are like ours in certain circumstances and don't in others. Geography, paleontology, evolution, uh, and historical biography too. Because I ran into some really funny characters. Uh, who were long dead, who uh, had also thought a little bit about these birds or their relatives and about South America in general. It's almost um, gun germs and steel on an even more historic scale. Yeah, yeah. It's it's At the end of it, I, I realized that you could take almost any species and, and create a story like this out of it. You know, who were its nearest relatives? Where are they? How did they get there? What's the, you know, what were... How did the world form in such a way that the, the living world form in such a way that, that allowed them to exist in the first place? And then you add on things like the fact that, of course, there have been people in the Americas for almost 25,000 years, it seems. And Amerindian people had a lot of experiences with these birds. They ended up in a lot of folklore and, 
uh, various traditions, which I don't think were widely known even within South America, um, much less outside of it. There's a strange kind of force field around South America that uh, people from the rest of the world just don't know much about it at all. And uh, it's every bit as rich and interesting as any other place. Uh, so I did have a lot of moments working on the book where I, I felt like I was just walking out into this territory that should not be unknown or uncharted at all and isn't to some people, but it's not the knowledge isn't disseminated widely. You know, not everything known is written and not everything written is known. Is it kind of a poverty Southern Hemisphere situation similar to Africa where, you know, that that Western culture hasn't spent as much time studying it or is it an individual case? In some ways, it's more remote from the thinking of the rest of the world than even than Africa is, um, or, that, or I say, when I say the rest of the world, remote to the northern world. It's, I had no idea that it was so varied and so vast, and that, uh, you know, the, the very fact that I could write a book about these really kind of sexy, funny, engaging birds of prey, which are a big, flashy animal, and find so little information... That should be a clue to, to how little is known about all kinds of things that aren't um, that conspicuous. It's not just the disconnect of like pre-Columbian history there. It's it's everything down to even the the, the flora and fauna. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, the, the pre-Columbian history is fascinating, no doubt. But that's still a very small slice of the, the biological history of the place. I didn't know until I started writing the book. I had never really realized that North and South America... Uh, only connected with one another about three to five million years ago, just of the blink of an eye in geologic time. And before that, South America for 30 million years had been completely isolated by ocean like Australia. So it produced this entire world of living things that were different from everywhere else on the planet. And a lot of them are still there. I've had Mary Roach on the show a few times, and I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Yes, there's a sense that I get that with this book specifically that the two of you operate in kind of a similar milieu from the standpoint of there being value in not being an evolutionary biologist or ornithologist. Yeah, I mean, there there are things that you're never going to entirely be privy to, um, and you're always kind of a tourist, but it's possible to be a, a thoughtful tourist, and you have the the privilege of being able to look at things in this very large scale that a lot of scientists just don't have the time to do um, because they're occupied with whatever their specific focus of research is. Plus they've got to try to scramble for grant funding. Plus they've got to um, manage their students and all kinds of things. And it's just the, the life of research scientists is very difficult. But I think there's a perception that there are all these people out there studying wild animals. And that's just not true. Most scientists don't study wild animals at all. Um, they study things that make people money. I also mean it from the standpoint of writing a book that's accessible to people beyond scientists. Yeah, well, what I wanted to do was, because the birds had taken me on this incredible journey over 25 years, is I wanted to take the reader on the same journey, just in less time. Uh, because there were so many moments that were entertaining or surprising or, or um, shocking to me. And so I wanted to bring you along for the ride. The only thing you need to bring to the book is a sort of vague interest in nature. You don't have to know about birds or anything. Well, it was it was really interesting to me how much writing the book felt like designing a set because there are certain, you're always trying to hold the audience's attention and interest in one way or another and not let the pace slacken too much at any one moment and sort of let them wander off. At the top of a set, it, it always helps to go through the first three or four numbers right in a row, just bang, 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 to sort of reassure them that you know what you're doing, they can trust you, 
And then they'll let you lead them maybe a little bit further out. You can do something more experimental. You can stop in the middle of a song. You can tell a story. You can you can sort of become more human. But at the at the outset, you really need to set off a bunch of fireworks to, to make sure that people feel like they're, this is going to be a worthwhile investment of their time. So I think I'd kind of internalized that already before I started writing the book. Now, in academic writing, that's not even really a consideration at all. Is developing a track listing similar to that process as well? Yes, although I'm painfully aware of how anachronistic the album is becoming. As a form, it's kind of dying out in a lot of ways. And uh, But I can't, still can't help doing it. Uh, when we make an album... Um, I really want it to be a, a full experience from the beginning to end. A full ex- I want it to be a full experience from beginning to end, that you could enjoy it as one long piece and get something out of it that way. I, I'm curious if you got any uh, you know, additional insight into that process when the band did the Berlin Trilogy. I mean, obviously, you know, th- these were albums that I assume you were very deeply familiar with even before tackling them in a live setting. Well, I thought so, but I, I thought I was familiar with them. But then when... It's, it's one thing to like a record and listen to it a bunch, and it's another thing to study it as a thing to, that you're trying to replicate. Because that was our job in those shows, was to try to reconstruct those records. And we took it really seriously. You know, we scored parts out for songs that were really impenetrable as to how they were structured. Sometimes we sat down and then just listened to them and marked on a chart second by second what was happening in the song just to figure out, okay, this enters here, this enters here, this part stops. Because those records, especially... Um, Low and Heroes, and the, the instrumentals in particular, are so... Uh, they were made by, by chance. I mean, there's a lot of it was Eno and Bowie just sort of making things up. And so trying to reconstruct that kind of energy is a very painstaking and, and odd process because you have to recreate their mistakes, essentially, or, or things that were happy accidents for them. Like where the Wurlitzer enters in um, V2 Schneider. Uh, it enters on a really strange beat, and it's because I actually found a little item in an interview where Bowie mentioned that moment and saying that he had come in on the wrong beat, um, but that they really liked the effect. And I thought, oh, no wonder it was such a... <laughs> and then when we uh, we had... I mean, we should back up for a minute and explain what this was. Is In 2018, uh, John Schaefer from WNYC's New Sounds asked me if I would get Shearwater together and if I would get Shearwater together and as many other musicians as I wanted and recreate Bowie's Berlin trilogy of low heroes and lodger. Now you were already performing lodger live at that point. Yeah. I think that was kind of proof of concept for him. Um, in the, the year after Bowie died, um, when we were on tour for jet plane and Oxbow, we started playing songs from lodger and eventually we played, we could play the entire record and we did it at a few performances. And one of them was filmed by the onion. John saw that and saw that we were serious about it. And Lodger is actually much more straightforward than the other two. The other two really made us sweat. I suspect probably not as intense as the process of, of writing the book, which, you know, was a seven-plus-year process. But Well, and totally alone. That's the other thing. It's that, you know, writing is extremely solitary. It's, it's why I hate it. But, the, <laughs> but making music is often much more fun because you have other people working with you, uh, even if it's just one or two. Uh, and the, the joy of getting together this really insanely talented ensemble of people. I mean, we had Ed Rodriguez from Deerhoof and Jamie Stewart from Shushu, Travis LaPlante from Battle Trance, uh, Elliot Krimsky playing synthesizer, in addition to the regular Shearwater lineup, you know, marshalling all of that together and, and directing that energy on these three shows over these three nights before this huge live audience in New York. And it was being recorded. It was being 
it was being recorded. It was going to be streamed. Uh, we we took the tracks and then mixed them all later. And uh, it was probably the highest pressure gig I've ever done. And they've broadcast it since actually multiple times on WNYC. Uh, it was also one of the most satisfying musical experiences I've ever had. Was research a part of this process? Did you really sort of need to know the thinking that went into the original production of these albums? Oh, yes, because it helped us figure out how they did it. Uh, I, I feel pretty confident that I could you know, write out an instruction book and get somebody else to produce these things now just because we were so in it for for months if you had you know if you had a greater technical ability than than i did or than some of us did then maybe you could have done it quicker but it was right up at the edge of what it was possible for for me to do and looking into i mean there were there were some little uh, archival things we had to research like for instance a lot of the songs i think all of them on low fade out well how are you going to do that live i mean you can just play quieter and quieter and sort of do a fade out but it's not very satisfying i th- think we only did that on um sound and vision but so we had to come up with endings for all these songs and i was really hesitant to to make anything new from whole cloth if i didn't have to so i went back and listened to live recordings from that era and if there was an ending for a song then we would take the you know we would recreate the ending from the live performance there is a sense of hubris and and thinking that you know not improve upon but that, that i could add something to these you know these these three masterpiece records well maybe we could have but but that wasn't the point the point was to to you know present them as almost as if they were a piece of classical music or something. You don't just sort of make up the rest of the unfinished symphony. There's a certain amount of interpretation that goes into any cover, but you were trying to hew as closely as possible. That was the whole point. Yeah, with one exception, which was that um, for the singing because a lot of that was going to fall to me to do, I really didn't want to do a Bowie impression fully. Um, you know, I didn't dress like him or pretend to be him or um, try to otherwise be your David Bowie for the evening because it's just disingenuous. You can't do it and it's kind of embarrassing. So one one thing that I did was I split the vocals into two people. I had me and Jamie Stewart and it wasn't just that we traded songs. Sometimes we traded different parts of different songs. And because Bowie often sort of sang in all these different voices anyway, it was a nice way to just split that up among a couple of different people and, and distribute the energy that way. And every once in a while, like when you're, you know, when you're singing these songs, you can't help do a sort of a Bowie impression doing it because you're just trying to form your mouth around the words the way he did. And I let myself do that sometimes, but then there were other times where I sort of deliberately didn't do that. Having watched, the, I think, the AV Club version of The, the Lodger, like that in particular, there are moments there where you are, if not channeling Bowie, then at least some of his vocal mannerisms. But that's kind of what you would do if you were playing guitar, right? I mean, you would want your, your tone to sort to be in that ballpark. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's, you know, one thing that's really wonderful about anybody who's a very distinctive vocalist or, or instrumentalist or anything is that they're often very easy to imitate. I mean, Jamie Stewart's a great case in point. You can you can do a Jamie Stewart impression pretty easily, but you couldn't come up with it. The fact that these people have found these ways of singing uh, that are then sort of added to everyone's repertoire is really fun. But of course, with Bowie, you know, Bowie didn't invent all that stuff either. He was also pulling from different sources, from Little Richard to, to Scott Walker. Yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of Elton John, where, you know, he's somebody who, like, knew his vocal limitations, but was really able to work within them. Yeah, he's got a really pretty limited range overall, but he just nails it within that range. It's like the, it's kind of like the sweet spot of the piano where you, you know, you're only, or a Wurlitzer or something. Like if you're playing a Wurlitzer, there's really only the middle of that thing sounds good. You could probably make a 25 key Wurlitzer and you'd 
could still do most of what sounds great with that instrument. But it sounds so good. <laughs> it sounds so good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, on, on the note of, uh, of hubris, you know, I, I wonder if this is something that went through your head initially when you were attempting to solve the fundamental mystery at the middle of the book, which is, I know that it was something that Darwin had at least investigated to some degree and then obviously moved on to something else. But there is sort of a sense of hubris and, and oh, no, I'm going to crack this mystery that Darwin couldn't get to the bottom of. <laughs> well, I also have some advantages on Darwin. In fact, I have a lot of advantages on Darwin um, and that I can fly all around the world really quickly, uh, which he couldn't do. I also have knowledge that wasn't available to him. He didn't know that the continents could move. He didn't know that DNA was the mechanism of heredity. Um, the things that scientists can do now with basically asking organisms DNA about their the history of their entire lineage, um, he would have been like a kid in a candy store with that stuff. But that's just, that wasn't something that was possible for him. I know it's very in vogue to discuss imposter syndrome, but <laughs> I assume that it is something that I mean, people deal with, especially when they're, for example, writing their first book, which is a yeah. science book, which is something that, you know, that didn't go to school for, or even something like covering three masterpiece Bowie records of like deciding that, yeah, that I'm, I'm the person who can do that. Or I'm the guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't really thought connected those two things. Um, after a while, it becomes, well, why not you? If nobody else is doing it, you might as well. The, the Bowie records were especially fun uh, in that there was, uh, there was a challenge there and that nobody had done that. Uh, other people had performed entire records from that group, but nobody had done all three. And so that sort of made it attractive. When we we had Carlos Alomar, who was always guitarist from like Young Americans up through into the into the 90s. He he used to conduct the piece for Sawa from low. Um, you can see it in footage of the 1978 tour. And he would come out just because it's very slow. It's in this really slow four. And you can see him come out with this giant long baton. And he conducts the band like they're an orchestra. And so I knew that John Schaefer knew him. And I said, do you think we could get Carlos to come and conduct us for that song? And he did. So he came out and uh, uh, conducted that song. And it was just one of the most extraordinary moments of my life, uh, sitting there watching the tip of his baton and trying not to not to fall off the one <laughs> because I was playing the low piano part in that, which is just boom, boom. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, you have to really, really count and make sure you get it right and you don't rush. You are somebody who has been in bands for a long time. Um, so less so, I, I suspect, than again, in, in writing this book. I mean, at what point, though, in the process of writing the book, was it clear that this was something that you could do. Well, I wasn't trying to write an authoritative scientific tome, which once I gave myself permission not to do that, uh, it got a bit easier. I mean, I ran parts of it past friends who were scientists and said, like, is this okay to say? Like, can I say, for instance, plausibly, um, that it's possible that there are, uh, that dinosaurs, large dinosaurs lived on in Antarctica long after the Cretaceous extinctions, and we just don't know about it. And the answer is yes. That is a possibility. Uh, so, you know, it's, but scientists can't really write papers about this. You can't write about stuff that might be true. You're free as an author to, to do a lot more speculation. Um, and it's sort of, you have to pass the, the, I was trying to think like the standard of guilt. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, what you say has to be plausible. It doesn't have to be demonstrably true. Burden of proof. Uh, yeah, burden of proof. There you go. The, the, uh, the burden of proof is, is lower for a, a general interest nonfiction book. And there are things in it that I know now are wrong, but I couldn't have known it at the time that I wrote it. For instance, I mentioned that uh, the Falklands might be the only place in the entire New World that Europeans actually discovered. Meaning that there weren't 
people there. There were no Amer Indian people there um, at the time that Europeans turned up there. And the wildlife acted the way wildlife acts when it hasn't seen people before, hasn't seen it in a very, hasn't seen them in a very long time. And it still does. Correct. Yeah, it does. There, the Galapagos is the same. And I think that's because there was little or no human presence until relatively recently. Now, but since I've published the book, um, a paper has come out that shows some evidence of Amerindians being in the Falklands before Europeans were there, maybe even hundreds of years before. But it doesn't look like they were ever there for very long. Um, I guess is probably what happened was some people got sort of blown out to sea coming up from Tierra del Fuego. But nonetheless, uh, uh, it is it is not true that Europeans were the first people to reach the Falklands. So your research was only wrong because there wasn't there wasn't evidence available to the contrary. It was an unknown unknown. Yeah. <laughs> to quote, to quote, Look, you know, he, he, at least he did one valuable thing in his life. Come on. Yeah. I don't know how much of that was him and how much of that was Errol Morris, but I, it is something that I do think has sort of stuck with us. <laughs> that's, if, if that's the thing that sticks with us from that guy, then we're doing pretty well. The Iraq war has also stuck with us. So yes, no, I just mean about the, the, the person of Donald Rumsfeld yeah, no. and thing that he said but yeah no you, you're you're quite right there's many things that are going to be with us for a very long time thanks to that wonderful man i saw you mention the fact that you had read uh, will chef's uh, uh, screenplay oh yeah yeah will screenplay is amazing and in a recent interview you had mentioned that you were considering your own screenplay is that something that's still kind of in, in the long list stop somewhere yes yes it is um the, i have a really good idea um for a movie that i'd really like to see uh whether anyone else would want to see it or not i have no idea but it's um it'd be based on these the adventures of these two german geologists it's a true story who uh lived in namibia or what was then german southwest africa is now namibia and they were there at the outbreak of world war ii and they knew that they were going to be put in a camp for military age men when uh when the British very quickly took over German Southwest Africa at the beginning of the war. And they left Germany because they didn't really like the Nazis in particular. Uh, they just wanted to be geologists. And so they uh, decided that they would just wait out the war in the desert. And so they went out into the Namib Desert and they hid out there for years. And they had to hunt their own food and find water and figure out ways to survive. And one of them wrote a book about it called The Sheltering Desert. And it actually was made into a film that's incredibly terrible <laughs> back in the, in the late 80s, or early 90s, I think. Nobody saw it. Uh, but I, I think an entirely different film could be made from that story that would be just extraordinary. It would be nothing like Will's movie. And like Will, again, as somebody who you know we primarily know as, as being a musician. Yeah, but Will's got such a huge brain. I mean, he's so funny. He's so quick and... Um, Often his songs are, are, are really funny, or the humor in them, you can kind of, it's easy to miss, but that really comes forward in this, this screenplay that he wrote. I mean, I, I did laugh out loud several times. Do you, you feel that, that your, um, your writing abilities would translate into yet another form? It's, it's all the same. I mean, the, it, it's amazing to me how much various different forms of art resemble each other in the process. Um, they all have these sort of will-gathering phases where you're trying to figure out what you're doing. And then, then there's analytical phases where you start trying to shape it in a certain way. And then a, a dramatic arc is a dramatic arc is a dramatic arc, whether it's theater, whether it's music, whether it's writing. So there has to be a, a shape to it and a journey that the, that the audience is going to go on with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how that directly plays a role in, in your songwriting. I mean, you know, obviously songwriting and poetry are similar in that they not entirely, but largely tend to be more abstract and straightforward narrative fiction, for example. Yeah, uh, with some exceptions. I mean, there are people who 
who take that by the horns and, and do things that are very linear and do it in a really compelling way. Who, I'm, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name, the guy who wrote an album about about being a law student in New York. Sir Good Marshall, won't you help me out? But it's a, it is a song about, or it is a, he wrote a whole album about studying law. And, uh, you know, the, the forms are, they're, they're open. Um, but yeah, in general, I mean, for me, certainly songwriting is a much more abstract process i don't tend to tell stories from beginning to end but you were getting at that there is some foundational element that's similar yeah i mean you you have to feel that you've you started somewhere you went on a journey and you arrived somewhere whether that's clear to you exactly what that is um is is not so important as that sense of arrival and if the arrival is a surprise that's even better Uh, one of the things about music that's so fascinating is its ability to provoke completely different emotional reactions from you within seconds um it just has such a direct line right into right past your forebrain into the you know dear cerebellum what does arrival mean in this context that's a pretty abstract question is it the emotion that it evokes is it the experience of listening to it you just have to feel that it picked you up in one place and set you down in another. It is the emotion or at least sort of the, the impact of, of interacting with it. I mean, that's what the mass is, you know? It's theater. It's, it's, it has, starts with an invocation and it ends with a benediction. It, it's, it's, this is a, a process that the human mind wants to go through, and it wants to go through it in a ritual way. I'm always curious, especially with musicians over the past two years now, or the role that music has played for them, not just in terms of creation, but also also listening. I mean, I know that, like, for example, I was dealing with some health issues and some depression early on, and I went through a period where I was unable to listen to music, and it was really ambient music and instrumental music that brought me back around. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, Bowie said when he left Los Angeles that he listened to Eno's record discrete music for like a month and nothing else. And that is the kind of record that you can do that with. It sort of it, it asks very little of you, um, and it gives you a great deal. And so it's a very, very tender kind of music, I guess. And I think that that's actually where their association began was with his, his interest in that record in particular. But yeah, I had the same experience. I, I, listening to music became very hard. Uh, and, and in general, you know, with, with anything, any field that you're working in, if you spend a lot of time uh, paying too much attention to what other people who are doing the same thing as you are doing, it, it drives you mad. Uh, so the, the kinds of music I tend to like to listen to have almost nothing to do with what I'm doing. In the sense that you're worried that you might accidentally crib something? Yeah, or you just start getting too fixated. For me, I start getting too fixated on, you know, should, should the, is that what drums are supposed to sound like now? It's always the drums that put something in a context of a specific decade. They do, yeah. There have been so many different it's kind of people are always trying to build a better mousetrap with them because drums are a wonderful instrument and yet you hear them over and over and over and over and over and over again often in the same kind of configurations with a trap set that's become sort of standard I mean, that wasn't a, a thing until the 20th century you start finding ways to try to make it sound a little bit different you just give some kind of a different experience of that sound than than you're used to unless you know the, the, the aim of the drums is to really be very very subordinate to everything else and they're just there to provide a little bit of lift but even then then uh, just the ways people have recorded drums over the years, the ways that the sound got bent as people tried to exert more control over the drums in particular is fascinating. I mean, that, the, that Talk Talk record, Laughing Stock, that you know, was so 
such a mind bender for me when I was younger. Um, and I still love it now, but I think I've heard it so many times I don't really need to hear it again. But the, the drums on it were recorded with one U47 microphone 30 feet back from the kit. That's it. And it's part of why they sound so good. And it's part of what makes that record sound so timeless. Which is kind of the antithesis to a lot of the, the recording in the 80s that was going on at the time. Well, yeah. For a record that came out in 1990, it's, a, it's kind of absurd. that I mean, that record came and went in six months and nobody bought it what was the process of recording the great awakening like what was the what was the setting was it you know i, I assume obviously that in the way that it always does these days the pandemic must have sort of played a role in your ability to get people together and record music yeah luckily we'd started it before all travel had shut down and so we were able to, to bring in josh halpern to play some drums on it and a few other people came in and played before that stopped early 2020 that far back yeah yeah we worked on it for a, a couple of years uh, because we were, we were finishing the second loma record at the time uh and i was finishing the book and then we were starting this new shearwater record and with all those things happening at once, it makes them all grind fairly slowly. But that was right at the top of it when we were able to bring other people in, and then everything got shut down within a month or two after that. So uh, it was me and, and Dan Dzinski, the, the producer engineer, who I also play with in Loma. Uh, at his place in Texas, I was living in an RV 30 feet away from the control room, and we went to the grocery store and made music. That was pretty much all we did for, for months, and I did a lot of landscaping, too, and, the, the landlords basically uh, paid me to do yard work. So I, I was thinning out this overgrown sort of juniper forest that had grown up all over the property. I mean, you know, speaking of being itinerant or I guess, you know, uh, migratory to, to borrow a phrase from birds. How did you end up in an RV? And I guess you were kind of in <laughs> fairly rural Texas, right? Yeah, it's uh, less and less rural all the time as Austin continues to approach it from the from the east. But Dripping Springs, Texas is where that was. Dan's studio is, is out there um, in this remarkable house that's built out of rammed earth. So the walls are like three feet thick. Uh, it just so happens that that's a beautiful acoustic substance. What is rammed earth? Rammed earth is sort of what it sounds like. Basically, the, the, you build a frame. It's a very ancient construction method, essentially, um, although you use jackhammers now instead of slaves. But you, you put dirt and rocks in this frame, uh, and then you just pound it down uh, with, with jackhammers now and just compress it. Um, and it sort of naturally cements together. There's no mortar. There's, it, and when you, you take the, you let it dry and you take the frame away and then there it is. I'm showing my ignorance here, but is it similar to Adobe? Uh, no. Or, I mean, I don't think, not really. I mean, it doesn't, it, it doesn't um, degrade as quickly if you get it wet or that kind of thing. I mean, they can last for hundreds of years, these structures, so they do all eventually crumble into dust. So there's sort of a fine layer of dust that settles over things in the house rather quickly. So it had a sort of a deadening effect? Well, not too much of one. Um, it's not as live as like a, you know, cinder blocks or something, but it's not as, as dead as a as velvet. It's, it's, a, it's really a nice, moderate, warm, beautiful acoustic surface. Which the owners who built it, I think, didn't have any intention to build the perfect recording studio, but they just did. And the way that Dan found it actually is kind of amazing. Uh, when he and Emily Cross first met, they lived in Chicago. Emily's the singer for Loma and, and also has her own band, Cross Record, that Dan played in for a while. They, uh, Emily just saw a Craigslist listing for this place in Texas. They didn't know anybody in Texas. And she said, I think we should move here. And Dan was like, what? 
<laughs> and they did. Uh, when they first moved in, I think there hadn't been anybody in it for months, and there were scorpions all over the place in there. But it's it's just an extraordinary space. Uh, it feels kind of timeless, and it, it or sort of like the house is listening to you. It's slightly eerie sometimes. If you're out there by yourself for too long, there's a little bit of it starts to get a little shiningy. But but the in the normal sort of flow of people and dogs and stuff coming through the house and working on music, um, it's just a delightful place to be. And so we, we made the, the Great Awakening there, and I used Dan as a producer-engineer, one, because he's so extraordinarily talented, and then two, because it was the pandemic and we were stuck. So it's like, well, while we're here together, <laughs> we, might as well, we might as well put this together. What impact does taking that amount of time on a record have on the end product? Well, the thing is that you don't work on it every single day. I think the most valuable thing you can do with records a lot of the times is not work on them. You know, you work for a few weeks, you step back, Dan would have other sessions or something, or I'd be scrambling to finish the book. We'd come back a month or two later, listen to what we did, start in again. It's like writing drafts almost. Exactly. Yeah, you can't, uh, there's things you just can't know about what you're trying to do while you're doing them. And I don't listen to rough mixes anymore, ever. We work hard while we're in it, and then we step away, and then we come back. And, and you notice things that are, that are far more significant when you do that. Instead of obsessing over the sound of the hi-hat, you go like, wait, this song's too fast, or this song is dumb, or, you know, there's <laughs> you know, these really big picture moves that, that really save you from yourself a lot of the time. Yeah, this song is dumb. That's a real bummer. Of a- <laughs> it is. Yeah, you have to be willing to let things go. I mean, I cut entire chapters out of the book. There was, there was a song for Don't Shy Away, the Limer record, that was like nine minutes long that we worked on for a long time and had all these like orchestral elements in it and these heavy metal drums and stuff. And it was just, it seemed like it ought to be great, but somehow it just was not getting off the ground. And so finally we just, you wrote a prog song. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty proggy in its way. (laughs) It depends on what era of prog you're talking about. Sure. But just in terms of like being very kind of like ornate and not having a central thesis, perhaps. Oh, like different sections and things like you sort of, there's different movements within it. It kind of had that a bit. Yeah. Someday we might get that back out again, or maybe we learned all we needed to learn from it. I noticed sort of some elements from it sneaking into a song that we were working on the other day. Uh, so it may be that parts of it will will come back in a different form. Does anything ever start life as a sheer water song and turn into a Loma song or vice versa? I haven't had that happen. Uh, part of it is because the process feels so different to me. Uh, because with Loma, you know, Emily's the singer, so I have to write for Emily to sing, which means I have to think about her vocal range, I have to think about her phrasing, I have to think about a character kind of for her to inhabit that I think would be comfortable for her in one way or another. And so it feels very, it feels more external to me. The Shearwater stuff is a little more unconscious, I guess. It sounds like then a lot of the Shearwater songs probably start in that like pretty standard process that a lot of songwriters have of, you know, singing something into an iPhone or getting that inspiration when you're not necessarily sitting down and, and woodshedding. Yeah, there's usually it's one little moment or something that, that triggers the whole song off for you. And the rule that we always try to apply when we're working is after we've worked on it and then come back and then stepped away and then come back. It's like, does this make us feel anything? And if it seems like it ought to, but it doesn't, that's a definite red flag. Uh, and uh, But if, if there's something that just continues to tug at us uh, in it and, and makes us feel something, we try to both protect whatever it is that's doing that in the song, because sometimes it's strangely easy to kill. 
and then develop it if we can. So do you have to be then in Loma brain for a while when you're working on the album? It helps, but I think over the years I've gotten better at just sort of dropping into whatever it is that I'm doing. And if you're in a space like that one in Texas where there's really not much else going on, you can you can get there. But yeah, I mean, the, all of these different pursuits, which when you think about them or when you look at them on paper seem kind of disconnected. To me, they all feel like one thing. They all feed one another. Um, it's wonderful not to have one absolute laser focus um, because you miss stuff when you get too drilled in. Or, or, or maybe it's sort of like we were talking about with songs. Like you, If you work on a song over and over and over and over and over and over, eventually you start feeling like Little Nemo in Slumberland. Like you just get smaller and smaller and smaller and all the elements in it get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you're just lost in this sort of mushroom forest. When you step back and you look at something different, you pay attention to something else, you kind of reinflate back to your regular size and the, the problems, uh, you, you see everything in a, in a better perspective. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine how painters do it. That's a, I, I'm not a visual artist and that I know that they're working with the same kinds of limitations and questions and stuff, but I just can't, it's, it's really difficult for me to imagine working on, especially like a large canvas where you have to fill in so many tiny details and then in, in trying to add up to this gigantic thing. But there's a very real and tangible way in which you can walk away from a camp canvas and walk back onto it. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's what you think of painters like stereotypically, like, you know, standing there looking at it, stepping back, stepping forward, stepping back, stepping forward. And, and musicians or leaving and, the room for a while and having dinner. And Yeah, well, the, you know, the do you know the Oblique Strategies cards? I, yeah, the uh, Eno. Uh, yeah, the Eno made this set of cards that have slogans on them, you sort of, strategies for trying to unblock yourself creatively, which you worked Those on. Those were part of the Berlin trilogy, right? They, they used them for that. Yes, they did. I mean, he, he made them with, uh, with a painter. Um, they collaborated on making them together. So it was a, a visual artist and a, and a sonic artist. And they found that the, the, you know, the same instructions were helpful. But one of my favorites is go outside, shut the door. Or, or do the obvious thing. That's another one. They came up recently. I was talking to a few people about some big life decisions that I, you know, feel like I, I need to make and, and I sort of like reached out to some people with the same sort of abstract question of what you do when you feel like the universe is telling you that you need a change, but you're not sure what it is. And uh, one person mentioned the oblique strategy cards and a few people, and I don't know, maybe this sort of t uh, hints at like the kind of people I associate with, but a lot of people mentioned tarot. And, and it's interesting because I think they serve similar purposes for people where they're not giving you a very a definitive set of instructions, but maybe they're sort of helping you in a direction. Yeah, I mean, tarot is interesting not because it has some mystical power, it's that um, the, the, it tells you things about what you're actually thinking. It, it can reveal aspects of your own subconscious to you that you weren't aware of. Which is what a good therapist is supposed to do, right? Well, precisely, yeah, exactly. But, the, you know, the, it's, uh, it's easier to find a pack of tarot cards. It's probably cheaper. cheaper than a lot yeah, of <laughs> definitely cheaper. You know, you talk about having multiple multiple irons in the fire, or, or spinning multiple plates, or whatever metaphor you want. But is it is it helpful when those plates are dramatically different? Is it helpful when one of the projects is a book versus Shearwater and Loma? Oh yes, yeah. It just keeps you from getting too burned out on one particular focus of attention. I think. I mean, I've just started a new book. Um, which is going to keep I saw you signed the deal. Congratulations. The Thank you. Yeah. It, it uh, got sold in the U S and Germany and Holland and the UK. So 
I better write it now. <laughs> but it's, it'll keep me, that's going to keep me going for the next few years uh, on that side. And it's all going to be about the, it's called the secret land, the once and future life of Antarctica. Pre-glacial? Uh, partly before the ice, partly during, and partly after. Without spoiling the book too much, what uh, what attracted you to to that that big hunk of ice? Well, Antarctica kept looming um, throughout the 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 most remarkable creature, my other book, uh, as a as a sort of it's clearly very important in many ways. Um, I think it was a refuge for life after the Cretaceous extinctions. Um, there are living things that came from there that are living in other parts of the world now. Um, they're also unappreciated parts of its ecology uh, because it's actually very alive, um, just not on land. But and you think of you know penguins and whales and and krill and seals and that kind of thing. But there's an entire other world that I'm going to go into that's not that even um, that's fascinating and uh, but is marine uh, that's developed because of the ice itself. Even though the ice when the when the when it broke off from South America and it froze, it changed the entire world. Antarctica has been pretty much driving what our world is like for the last 30 million years. And maybe this plays a role in it, but you know, it's something that, that I had been thinking about. Obviously, we're going through this pandemic, and, and there, prior to it, there have been a lot of conversations about um, what happens in terms of Ice Age era diseases when the, when the snow caps melt. Well, they'd have to, yeah, you always imagine some terrible pathogen that, that unfreezes and suddenly, it, I mean, it could happen. Uh, most of the diseases that we deal with uh, as humans that are really a problem for us, they come from livestock uh, and or come from animals that we associate with closely. And, it's, they, and, the, and it has to happen over prolonged and extended contact with these animals. It doesn't normally just sort of jump on and, and uh, uh, you have to have a lot of contact. It's not like the alien movies where, you know, suddenly this little spore gets in your nose and you have an alien crawl out of your chest. Maybe it comes from a lab. I mean, yeah. I'm not ruling that possibility out entirely. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a totally di- Yeah. But, you know, it, it's, it comes from things, long sustained processes that we're already doing. Compared to that, I mean, I think for, for our species in the immediate sense, sea level rise is much scarier because if you melt away all the ice off of, off of Antarctica, the west and east Antarctic ice sheets, you raise sea level by almost 200 feet, and that's a very different looking world. Yeah, I'm, I'm in New York City, and Yeah, you're underwater. I mean, I'm in Florida, for God's sake, we'll be underwater long before you. And Ham- even Hamburg, I mean, it's at sea level. So uh, this is going to be very immediate for, for, for a great number of people. That's not really the focus of my book. Um, I, I'm because it gets very easy to get sucked into that discussion because it's so scary for all of us and it occupies our, our attention so much. And understandably so. Yeah, without a doubt. And there are many people who are taking that story up already. What, what I want to do is try to, to hit this, the, the zoom out button on Google Earth a bit more and sort of think about it in the context of where we really are. Because I think it's what most of us, just including me, fail to understand most of the time where you really are at this moment in time and in space. Even that, that sort of that old cliche about, you know, being on a rock hurtling through space, I think it's useful context when it comes to the kind of stuff that we worry about day to day. Well, yeah, precisely. And, and it's, it's not that it makes it unimportant to us because day-to-day concerns are important. But um, it is, for me, helpful to think of my life as being a very small part of a very, very, very large canvas uh, whose dimensions we're not even completely aware of. Um, there are many blank parts of it that we don't know what they are. Uh, 
There were times when the earth was frozen from pole to pole, like Europa. There were times when there were no ice caps at all. There have been many different versions of life on Earth, and we're just part of one of them. 